welcome to 17 Minutes of Science, our show that explores the world of science and how it affects both the starting academic and the seasoned professional. I am Hannah Houston, and today I am joined by Dr. Gabriel Bosse. Gabriel Bosse is currently a postdoctoral fellow with Randall Peterson at the University of Utah. Prior to joining the Peterson Lab, Gabriel did his graduate studies at the Université Laval in Quebec City with Martin Samard, where he studied the regulations of the microRNA pathways with the nematode C. elegans. After completing his PhD, he was interested in developing novel behavior-based assays to study neuronal function and disease modeling. He chose to join the Peterson Lab with the hope of combining such assays with unbiased screening approaches, such as small molecule screening. Given the ongoing crisis with opioid abuse, he set out to develop the first self-administration model using the zebrafish model. This unique assay allows him to study the impact of different small molecules on opioid seeking and to investigate important biological pathways regulating this behavior. Welcome, Gabriel. What an interesting area of research that you've, that you've chosen. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. So can you tell us a little bit more about your research? It's very fascinating. Yeah, so really the, the goal of my research is to use zebrafish as a model to study both like the, how the brain works but also to model neurological disorders. So for example, like addiction is one of those disorders, you know, uh, but also interested, you know, in anything particularly relevant to like impulse control, aggression and things like that, you know, which these symptoms are part of different disorders, uh, including addiction. And really the goal is to use zebrafish, both to understand the biology controlling these events you know, what, what are the pathways involved in aggression and impulse control, but also why do we have symptoms of like, you know, hyper-aggressive person or somebody who have a lack of impulse control or in the case of addiction, you know, what are the pathways that regulate self-administration? By understanding the biology, we can then understand and perhaps create new treatment. And by using small molecule screening as one of these approaches that you can have molecules that modulate that behavior. So for example, you have a molecule that can affect how, how much an animal consume an opioid and then it can give you a lead for potential treatment. Wow, what a fascinating area of research and, and so important, especially right now. Can you tell us a bit more about why zebrafish are particularly well suited for researching opioid addiction? So I think, you know, zebrafish is an emergent model for uh, neurological processes. Um, and I think it, it brings a set of tools that are not necessarily present in existing models, you know, like rodent models have been the primary model to study drug addiction. And they've been making like great progress in understanding, you know, how the brain works and how the circuits are, are changes and implicated in addiction. But I think zebrafish brings a set of tools, like I mentioned, that are different. You know, it's really a strong genetic models. For example, you can easily do mutants using techniques such as CRISPR-Cas9. Mm -hmm. um, and then you can then study out that effect process, uh, process of addiction, for example. And, and really one of the key points too is the ability to do large scale uh, assays and large scale approaches. You know, so my assay, for example, you can train fish fairly quickly to acquire the self-administration conditioning and, and you can train a lot of animals in a short span of time and then again when you talk about small molecule screening you know with zebrafish you can put molecules directly in the water so no need for injection so it's 
fairly fast, and then you can test a lot of molecules fairly rapidly. I think that's a key strength of zebrafish, the ability to do, to do those large scale assays. You know, that it's much harder and more, and importantly, very expensive to do with rodent. So you can do these assays in fish. So it, for me, in my view, I see like fish as a complement to existing models. You know, it brings a different set of tools. Yeah, we are really big fans of the multi-model approach mm -hmm. as well. And believe strongly in the fact that every model can provide different benefits yeah. to your research. Yeah, I think so, uh, definitely. Um, so in your research, do you use um, larvae or adults? And mm -hmm. is, is there one you prefer over the other for your research? Yeah, that's a very good point. And I think it comes down to what you want to do exactly. What do you want to study? What are you trying to measure? Because both adult and larvae have sets of strength that are different. You know, so if we think about larvae, you know, it's simple, small animals, you know, so doing large scale approaches are much easier. You know, you can think about, you know, for example, if you just want to look at locomotion, let's say you can use like a 96 wall plate and test like, you know, different mutants, different molecules, and very rapidly you can go through thousands of molecules, dozens of mutants, you know, you can study a lot of, of different um, parameters are changing different conditions you know and and again if combining that with CRISPR-Cas9 for example and looking at the development of the animal looking at how these different mutants affect how the animal behavior larvae are very well suited for that you know and the other aspect is that larvae are translucent meaning that you can image anything almost anything in the larvae whatever it's like you know the heart the heart how it's beating uh, different cells might be expressed in the heart, but also you can go down to like brain activity. You know, there's some very cool experiment that has been done over the years to look at how the brain is reacting to changes in light and changes in the environment in real time. So in an animal that is living and you can see the entire brain, how it's, um, you know, lighting up, how the neurons are communicating in a live animal. So larvae are great models for that, you know, but Adults bring like the aspect of complexity, you know, adults can do much more complex tasks or complex behavior. For example, you know, you think about social interaction, you think of, like memory formation and things like that, or in my case, the opioid self-administration, that larvae don't have the sets of skills to acquire these more complex paradigms. So, you know, you can still do high throughput assays with, with the adult animal, um, not quite as much, or as large as larvae, but really depends on which type of experiment you're trying to do and what are your takeaway you're trying, you're hoping for, you know? So, you know, larvae at seven days old, for example, are not social animals. This is not something that they have acquired yet. So if you're interested in social interaction, then you go with a bit older animal. It comes down to the biological question that you're asking, I think. No, that's that's such a good point about the visualization aspect of the larvae that um, you know it makes everything so much easier when yeah. you can see it with your own eyes. Mm -hmm. um, what assays do you use in your studies? Yeah, so the main assay that I'm using is an opioid opioid self administration. So basically, we have a rectangular arena with two platforms. And then we train fish to swim towards one particular platform that we call the active platform. And if they go to this platform, they receive a dose of opioid. So we use the opioid hydrocodone. Um, 
So it's one of the most commonly abused opioids. It's used in clinic extensively. Um, so fish essentially trained to go back to this platform to get a dose of drug. And then we can measure the number of times that these animals swim to, at this platform. And then it gives us a readout on opioid intake or consumption, if you want. Hmm. Uh, so it's a, this is the main assay. We do that with adults. You know, uh, I was talking about the complexity. You know, they have to learn that they have to swim to that location and then they have to form associative memory. So associated that, you know, this particular platform with re receiving a reward, you know, so that's something that that larvae could not do to that uh, extent. So this is the main assay I'm using, but, you know, on the side I've also developed, you know, or optimized assays to look at memory. So like novel objects, for example. Uh, so we can look at memory, stress and anxiety. We can look at social interaction. Uh, all of these with adults, for example. With larvae, you know, as, as I mentioned earlier, you can do large scale approaches with like simple behavior, but you can still look at like um, sleep. You can look at, um, sorry, stress and anxiety. You can mm -hmm. look at like baseline locomotion. Um, and also, you know, you can do some like non-associative learning that was called habituation. You know, so if you repeat the stimuli, like uh, they're gonna stop responding to it as they get used to it, if you want, you know. Uh. But you have, uh, so that's one of the assays I'm using. So like, it's really a battery of assays, like a platform that you can use after that to, to understand how a compound, whether it's a natural molecule, whether it's a molecule used in a clinic, how is it affecting behavior? So you're gonna get the signature of the behavior mm -hmm. and try to understand how does this change? So, and after that, you know, you can also use a such platform for mutants as well. Right. So understanding what sets of behaviors are affected by the treatment and mutants. Um, so that these are very useful tools. Wow, yeah, no, that, that sounds like a really interesting approach. So can you tell us a little bit more about why you choose a small molecule screening approach in your research? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, you know, that's one of the key strengths of the Peterson lab. So Randy has been a pioneer of small molecule screening in zebrafish. And, and for me, what interested me initially was the unbiased aspect. Mm -hmm. You know, so let's say you, you take a library of like a thousand molecules, it could be, let's say, natural compounds. Now, these are compounds that don't, we don't know necessarily what they're doing. Uh, and, and really, they're going to maybe lead to the discovery of, you know, first new biology. You know, they can target a pathway that you have, nobody suspected that it could be involved in this particular biological process. But also, it could tell you that this molecule could be useful to treat this condition or to improve a particular mutant, something like that. So really for me, the unbiased aspect was the key, you know, in my PhD, I did, uh, I used a mutant that was isolated from a genetic screen. So it's a different uh, unbiased approach. Right. You know, in that case, it was generating random mutation and I identify mutants with this particular set of phenotype. So, and, and so really I got interested in small molecule screening as like an alternative to genetic, you know, it brings different sets of, again, strength and, and different tool that genetic screening uh, but really, the, yeah, the aspect that you can treat, you know, sets of molecules. Uh, so it's not that you can have it hypothesis driven, but fully unbiased as well. You know, then um, I think it can lead to exciting new discoveries, exciting new biology that really are, were uh, unexpected. 
Right. Yeah. Removing biases from from our research is uh, it's it's it can be difficult, but it is crucial. Mm -hmm. What are the next steps for your research? Yeah. Uh, so one of the next step, you know, and it's something that we did with the latest discovery. Uh, so we identified a compound in zero fish called finasteride that affects opioid consumption. So you treat fish with this compound and they reduce opioid intake. And one thing that we, uh, we wanted to do is to validate these findings in rodent. Uh, so that was one of the steps moving forward, you know, is it conserved in rodent? So that's something that is interesting, you know, validate. Again, you mentioned multi-model approaches. So that's one way to do it. And, and, and really, so, you know, that, that discovery which that's right, I then opened the door as well to study the role of neurosteroids in opioid addiction. So this is a molecule that affects neurosteroids uh, production. So, you know, investigating downstream pathways affected by finasteride, you know, what is the, you know, what is the biology of it? So how is finasteride reducing opioid intake? So that's one of the, you know, moving forward, that's something I'm interested in studying. But also, you know, we're, we're looking at potentially small clinical trial even, you know, can we uh, use the discoveries that we made in fish and in rats? Uh, and, you know, could we improve quality of life of like, people, of like patient affected by opioid addiction? You know, so that's one of the key thing, you know, what can we do with those discoveries? But also, you know, how could we improve the assays? How can we improve zebrafish as a model, both for addiction and also as a platform for, you know, studying neurological disorders? Wow, yeah, I mean, Opioid addiction is such a such a mm -hmm. huge uh, problem right now, and mm -hmm. your research really could could have a huge impact there. So uh, it'll be really exciting to see where it goes in the future. Yeah, we're very hopeful that it could, you know, even if you improve the quality of life or have subset of patients, you know, it'd be amazing. You know, that's right. Kind of the the, the dream for a scientist. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Well, your work focuses on zebrafish. You uh, you validate in rats. Mm -hmm. Can you speak more on the benefits of a multimodal approach and why you choose to include this in your research? Yeah, and I think we already discussed briefly about it, right? I think different models have different strengths, you know, and it can complement each other nicely. Um, and and also the zebrafish to study addiction is still like a uh, new field of research. Um, and it's still something that we're trying to establish as a robust and validated approach. And as I mentioned, rodents, especially rats, have been the gold standard in addiction research. I mean, yeah, obviously you can use non-human primates, but you know, there's a set of complexity there as well, you know, but rat has been really used over the years, an extremely powerful model to study opioid uh, addiction or addiction in general. And really our goal was to use like validated approaches, you know, like rat self-administration. There's established protocols, there's established ways of doing it um, that has been used for years and years. And, and really by validating that a compound that we identified in fish also works in rat, gives strength to the story. You know, we, we know that finasteride can reduce opioid self-administration, for example, in different models, animal treat condition with different protocols. And I think it really shows that there's potential for translational research. And, and, and any research that has a translational aspect often goes to rodent uh, in the steps of understanding. 
there is more and more molecules that are going from fish directly to clinical trials. Um, but in the field of neuroscience, which is still an emerging field for zebrafish, I think it's still, um, you know, often people go to rats with validated approaches. Uh, so for us, that was important to like, confirm that what we found in fish was conserved in mammals. Yeah, no, that's, that's really unique and, and wonderful that you're choosing to take that approach. Um, now for our final question, uh, zebrafish have been slow to gain popularity in drug discovery research compared to other models such, such as rodents. Do you think the field is changing towards more adoption of the zebrafish model? Yeah, I think so. And I think fish is being, like I said, validated more and more. So meaning that the field is accepting fish as a solid model to study um, in neuroscience, let's say. And, and I think it comes down to appreciating that fish can have like a complex range of behaviors. You know, there's that old saying that, you know, goldfish has a two second memory or something like that, right? And it's not true, you know, zebrafish in particular are showing, you know, that they can establish memories. They can, you know, they react to the environment. They show sign of anxiety. They are a social animal, you know? So there's a complexity of behavior there that, they, that is being more and more appreciated. You know? Like I mentioned too, you know, it brings a set of tools that is different from rodent, you know? And there's also, you know, a push to more cost-effective methods to study different uh, like disorders to do research in general right and also to try to reduce our use of animals especially in on mammals model now i think zebrafish can bring a lot of like extremely powerful methods um, that can you know complement and in some cases replace rodent model but it's also tricky to say replace you know because i think it's really complementing what's existing but i think you know it's a cost-effective method uh, to study some of these disorders, bringing a different set of tools. And I think that people are starting to appreciate and understand the validity of using zebrafish and also like how powerful that can be. Right. Yeah. And uh, I mean, we at Envivo love zebrafish. So we are very excited about that and the, the trends of towards more zebrafish adoption mm -hmm. and popularity. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a great model. Well, um, that's our time. So thank you so much for joining us today, Gabriel. It was wonderful to hear more about your research and um, about zebrafish in general. Yeah, it was my pleasure. It was great to be with you. Again, thanks for the invite. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> and um, to everyone, uh, tune in next time for 17 Minutes of Science. Bye. Yeah, bye.